we were convinced that the right frontal area comes into play even in, with a very slight hearing decline. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Brian Watkins. While death and taxes may be the only certainties in life, it's often the case that the older we get, the poorer our hearing becomes. Today we're joined by Yuni Lee from The Ohio State University. He'll talk with us about his research, which suggests that hearing loss among younger people can tax their cognitive resources in ways that are typically not encountered until our 50s. Here's Yuni Lee. Hi, uh, my name is Yuni Lee. I'm an assistant professor of uh, chronic brain injury in the speech and hearing science department at the Ohio State University. So I've been here almost two years, uh, and my main expertise domain is in the auditory neuroscience with speech, language, and music. So we study how speech and music, they're connected in, in the brain uh, by using fMRI or some other portable neuroimaging device called the functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or uh, FNIRS. Uni is also a musician and previously was a commercial music director. However, after stumbling onto research regarding music processing in the brain, he decided to return to school, completing his PhD in cognitive neuroscience at Dartmouth College. Ryan and I wondered what led to his interest in studying differences between younger and older adults' hearing ability. I was really fascinated by the way how the brain really uh, you know, adjusts itself uh, to make sense of speech sound, especially older people's brain. When uh, they get older, their brain is going through some cognitive decline, uh, also hearing decline, as you may know, and the brain is actively uh, adjusting itself. So the right side of the brain typically is idling for language processing. As you know, language is predominantly left lateralized processing, but the right side of the brain, uh, sort of homologous area comes into play to compensate for sort of a cognitive and hearing decline, um, which we typically see in people after age 50. But in my recent study, we were surprised to see that actually the right side of the brain is lighting up when they have a slight, like tiny bit of hearing decline that is so slight that they're not even aware of. So that, that was the paper that we, we wrote about. Doug and I were also curious to learn what it is that's known about the degree to which hearing loss is linked to dementia. There's a study done by Franklin in 2011. And according to that study, what it says is compared with normal hearing, the ratio for dementia was 1.89 for mild hearing loss. Three for moderate hearing loss and 4.9 for severe hearing loss. So it's like twice uh, more likely to have dementia for people with mild hearing loss or three times more likely for moderate hearing loss and sort of five times for severe to profound hearing loss. So that's what that study suggested, which was very shocking, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there's direct connection link between hearing loss and dementia. And I, you know, I have my grandmother who, who actually passed away last year, the age 88, but I was very surprised by her cognitive health. I mean, she memorized, you know, phone numbers of my moms and aunts. And <laughs> these days I, I don't remember, <laughs> my, <laughs> right? I barely remember like my phone number and a few others. 
but she had a lot of issues with hearing. I had to speak loud. So, so there are a lot of, you can find a lot of exception out there. Given that we see the areas that we normally don't see in the youngsters, that means they already start recruiting this compensatory network down the road that it might train, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that they're going to definitely develop the dementia. You know, some people ask me, you know, I have a son who has a hearing loss. Uh, I'm worried that, you know, down the road, he'll develop some type of dementia. So I have to convince them that no, 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 that, you know, uh, although we speculate that there's a risk factor, this hearing loss is a risk factor, there's, there's no <laughs> study. So it definitely needs a prospective follow-up studies. I, I, I want to be really <laughs> cautious about uh, over-interpreting this. <laughs> Uni and a team of five other researchers from across the U.S. tested the hearing acuity of young adults 18 to 41 years of age, a group he refers to as youngsters, since so few people in this group experience hearing loss. This led Ryan and I to ask him, just how is hearing and its loss measured in research studies? Auditory sensitivity can be measured in a few different ways. One of the most popular ways is doing what was called the PTA, pure tone audiometry. So you basically uh, gradually decrease the volume of a certain frequency of sound, like pure tone sound, until they don't hear anything. And it's done per uh, specific frequency ranges. And, you know, there's a systematic way of figuring out whether this person is clinically falling into the category of uh, normal range or mildly hearing loss or profound to severe hearing loss. There's certain threshold. Uh, typically, below 25 decibel is regarded as clinically normal range for youngsters. And beyond the 70 decibel, uh, that's hearing loss, just complete hearing loss, deaf, if you will. When people's hearing is impaired, their brain sometimes compensates by shifting the language processing functions that are typically of the left hemisphere over to the right hemisphere. However, this can result in an increased cognitive demand on the right hemisphere, which has been associated with an increased risk of dementia. Because of this link between hearing loss and dementia, Doug and I were interested in learning about the extent to which people experience hearing loss. 2% of adults aged between 45 and 54 have some uh, hearing loss, uh, and the rate increases to maybe 8.5% for adults aged between 55 and 64. And people with higher hearing threshold, meaning that uh, relatively poor hearing acuity, they tend to activate their right side of the brain. But we're looking at the youngsters, right, um, aged between 18 and 41, and none of them are actually regarded as people with hearing loss. All the subjects, 35 subjects, they're all within the clinically normal hearing range. So there's no indication that they have a hearing loss. They're all falling into this less than 25 decibel threshold, clinically normal hearing range. So... This is not the population that you want to study the, the connection between hearing loss and um, some other cognitive impairment because their hearing is really sharp. They're really good <laughs> in general. Next, Ryan and I wanted to know more about how the participants were presented with the auditory stimuli while they were inside of a functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI machine. 
and also how this resulted in limiting the number of participants that could be included in the study. This is sort of a two alternative force choice task. So the task is who is performing the action. So for example, if the sentence is like boys that kiss girls are happy, it's a boy who kissed the girls, right? So it's a boy is a, a male. So the subject is asked to press the male button. Uh, if it's a female, female button. So if you don't pay attention to the sentence that you're hearing, you get chancellable performance. And we have four different runs, so four different blocks of fMRI scanning. And if they have uh, chance-level performance in any of those uh, four runs, then we dis decide to discard those subjects. And some subjects actually had a below chance-level <laughs> performance, like 13%-29. The way that could happen is if they accidentally map out the button with the opposite gender, right? So 13% would be 87%. So maybe that subject you know, did a good job and understood, but then it just messed up the button press. Again, we couldn't endorse that as a good data set. And that doesn't happen to all the four runs that uh, opposite or below chance level performance. We saw that in some of the runs. So we just, we're, we weren't quite sure. So just to be sure, we decided to d discard those four subjects and there's one subject who moved the head more than 10 millimeter in the run one and two. So in fMRI, as you may know, it's very important to keep the head still as much as possible. If you move the head more than two millimeter, then the data, there's some problem there. But this subject moved more than 10 millimeter. So there's no question that uh, we, have, we cannot use this data set. And two subjects we had to discard because we don't have their working memory data. The reason being is uh, those are the two subjects who participated in, uh, earlier in the study. We used different working memory tests. It's called the automated working memory. We realized that that took so long. It just couldn't fit with the schedule of our study. So, you know, we couldn't make use of that data set, unfortunately. So we decide not to uh, include those two subjects. And there are four subjects whose performance were just at chance level or even below chance. So yeah, so, there, there, so that's why there are a total of seven subjects that we could not make use of. A main goal of the study was to examine the extent to which hearing acuity relates to people's neural engagement during the comprehension of spoken sentences. We asked Uni to explain what he and his team found regarding this, as well as what other analyses they conducted that were related to those findings. Our initial question was how the brain is modulated by the degree of complexity in sentences. So we modulated the syntactic structure and uh, we record the brain activity while you know, men and women are listening to those bunch of sentences in the magnet. And we found what, what we expected to see. So the brain obviously put more efforts when there's increase of complexity in sentence structure. So there are two different manipulations. One is adding this objective or subject relative embedded clause. In other words, adding what we call objective phrase. So for objective phrase, we actually didn't find anything in the brain. So that, that was, I have to admit that kind of failure of the study, 
design because we we didn't find any differential brain activity associated with this uh, position of adjectival phrase but we did find differential brain activity associated with objective versus subject relative sort of embedded clause as it turned out these findings weren't the ones that most surprised uni and his team nor were they those that ended up garnering the attention of the popular media as he explains after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. When we left off, we asked Uni to explain the unexpected results that he and his team found, as well as their implications. As an additional analysis, we were looking at uh, the effect of hearing differences in the youngsters. So even if they're all normal hearing range clinically, uh, we just... Hey, um, let's see what would happen if uh, we um, relate their differential hearing threshold, the hearing acuity, to the brain activity. And to our surprise, we found that the right frontal area, which is kind of homologous to the left language network, uh, show up as significant cluster. It was modulated by hearing loss, and it was not modulated by uh, the sentence structure, like object relative, subject relative. So it is related to hearing loss, but it's not uh, responding to differential syntactic structure within a sentence. Yeah, and then we did some more confirmatory analysis. Um, Some of them were requested by reviewers, and we were convinced that the right frontal area comes into play even with a very slight hearing decline. And then somehow it, it tries to help out this language processing uh, in youngsters. Like most researchers, Uni and his team reported their findings in text and tables, as well as through images, which are typically called figures in academic publishing. Included among these figures were brain scans made while people listen to spoken sentences. Doug and I asked Uni how these interactive images are read, which, as you listen, you can manipulate at parsing.science/tmap. That's T-M-A-P. Uh, TMAP is basically after you do some t-test on a voxel by voxel basis. So here, what I mean by voxel is the basic unit of a neuroimaging data, just like a pixel in picture 2D data. So every voxel you have uh, t statistics, t uh, t value. So now let's look at this sentence versus noise. Sentence greater than noise, and then you see this bilateral. Uh, activation in the temporal lobe. So the the biggest slice you're seeing is what's called the horizontal image. And you see that uh, the side-by-side red activation, also the frontal activation. So for the sentence versus noise, and I, I think it's on threshold data, these frontal temporal areas are lighting up in response to sentence uh, more greatly than to noise. So the sentence engaged the language network and the auditory network more greatly than the noise, the simple noise sound. 
So that's what it does. And if you kind of hover around, you know, click here and there, um, you see the number and XYZ at the bottom. So XYZ is a coordinate of this neuroimaging data. And then right after that, the number indicates the T value at that particular uh, location, that coordinate. That means that that area somehow lighted up more for noise than for sentence. fMRI machines are notoriously loud. So Ryan and I asked Uni how neuroscientists are able to test people's hearing acuity while participants are inside of a scanner. So fMRI is uh, in general sort of a hostile environment because it generates really loud noise. The de decibel level is almost like 110, which is comparable to uh, jackhammer drilling sound. So if you don't put on the earplug, you actually, you hurt your ear. So we as auditory neuroscientists, we have to present the auditory stimuli while we are scanning them. And then that main stimuli can be masked out by the loud scanning noise. So the way we do is constantly turning on and off the scanner. And when it's off state, we present the sound and we quickly turn on the scanner and then it records the brain activity. So what Itroplast does is to create sort of a pocket of silent period where we present the sound and then we record the brain activity like a few seconds later. So that's sort of an advanced technique from the conventional what's called the silent protocol. So that's what we call this little advanced technology. Uh, for the last year or so, I've been developing even more advanced Itroplast sequence so that we have elongated this pocket from five seconds to 10 seconds and so forth. So yeah, I think that the technology will continue to evolve so that we can study the brain activity associated with sound processing. Doug and I wondered if people's comprehension of books or any other written text operates in the same way as when information is presented in an auditory fashion, as was done in Uni's study. The auditory spoken language it unfolds over time and it, it vanishes, uh, it disappears. So you really have to maintain information in your what's called a working memory buffer system. And then you have to go back to relate what you just heard a few seconds ago to what you are hearing right now, what you're listening to. Whereas reading doesn't have to go through that process. You can just revisit very quickly. The text is still there. It doesn't disappear. But if you know they have limited time, if they don't go back and forth or revisit what they just read, I think that their working memory in general should affect uh, their comprehension because the information that you just had, if you don't have a good working memory system, then that's gone. Then you struggle to <laughs> relate or you know sort of a, uh, understand the entire story. So yeah, that's why this oral speech comprehension uh, could be more challenging, especially with older people who go through this working memory decline significantly. If a hearing aid or cochlear implant can help restore some people's lost hearing, might such devices also potentially improve the cognitive processing among those whose hearing has been damaged? Here's what Uni had to say in response to our question. That is the hope that once we help them out by providing some hearing aids or CI, their brain starts to develop plasticity so that the brain comes up with a way to compensate for uh, some hearing loss. 
by tapping into other cognitive resources. So one study we're designing right now is to train CI uh, users, CI uh, people, patients on some working memory regimen and see if they benefit from it down the road so that you know, even if uh, they permanently lose their hearing acuity uh, and they have very minimal uh, hearing sound, if they can develop some of the brain plasticity that can compensate for their compromised hearing, then they can maintain their conversation. And so that, that is sort of our hope and uh, sort of our uh, research goal at the moment. FMRI scanners work by measuring the oxygenated hemoglobin, which contains iron, in the blood, and where blood flows in the brain can indicate what's being activated in it. So Doug and I asked how these kinds of brain scanners can be used for purposes other than brain imaging. FMRI is a way of indirectly examining the neural activity by chasing the blood. And, you know, it's been almost 30 years and a lot of uh, validation studies try to look at the coupling between uh, this what's called the bowl signal, blood oxygen level dependent signal, uh, and the neural activity, the, uh, what they call field potential. And it's been confirmed. So we tend to believe that if uh, fMRI shows differential activity pattern, then you know the, the brain operates differently. So even if it's kind of crude measure, people came up with the idea of decoding you know, humans' thoughts or humans' perceptions uh, by looking at fMRI data. The way it, it works is basically putting all the uh, fMRI data into the new machine learning classifier so that it can decode the information of whether people seeing this picture or that picture, hearing this sound versus that sound, or whether someone's doing addition or subtraction if you're interested in math study, or whether someone's going to purchase uh, car A versus car B. So that has been already um, done in the cognitive neuroscience field for the last decade. The consensus is that uh, fMRI data is actually quite informative. Ryan and I are also interested in another device common to neuroscience research, electroencephalography, or EEG machines. We asked Uni what the similarities and differences are between the instruments, as well as whether there are recent developments in brain imaging that we should be aware of. They're looking at uh, different aspects of uh, neural processes. fMRI is looking at spatial map or spatial processing in the brain, whereas EEG is looking at the temporal processing associated with particular cognitive tasks. Both can be used to complement each other. So there's actually fMRI combined with EEG studies out there. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, I recently started using this FNIRS, which stands for Functional Near Infrared Spectroscopy, which you can think of it as a mini version of fMRI. It works exactly the same as fMRI. The principle is the same, but it's sending light to the brain. It hits the hemoglobin and it gives us the idea of what areas in the brain uh, consumes more oxygen than the other areas. So it's been around quite some time, but recently they really went through the technical breakthrough. So we're about to use this new device for studies with seniors and patients and some children. So this device is very compatible with those population because fMRI, you can study people with a CI or people with a pacemaker because they have metal in their body. 
you can't put them in the magnet because uh, it gets sucked up to the uh, scanner. So very dangerous. So that's a one big advantage of FNIRs that allows us to study people's sort of brain activity while they are performing the task uh, in their naturalistic position. So, so I'm interested in using this for my own music study. So when people are doing this sort of a dual drumming or you know dual singing or uh, it can be also used for communication back and forth of a conversation so so yeah i'm looking forward to using this that was yuni lee discussing his article differences in hearing acuity among normal hearing young adults modulate the neural basis for speech comprehension which he published with five other researchers in the may june 2018 issue of e-neuro You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org e30, along with bonus content and other material that he discussed during the episode. Though we just launched it two weeks ago, Parsing Science's weekly newsletter has been a big hit. You can sign up at parsingscience.org newsletter, or if you'd like to first check out our inaugural issue, go to parsing.science n1. We've also got a limited number of Parsing Science stickers available. So if you'd like one, just let us know where to send it, and we'll mail one to the next 17 newsletter subscribers for free. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Adrian Dyer from RMIT University and Monash University, both located in Victoria, Australia. He'll talk with us about his experimental research showing that wild honeybees may be able to understand the concept of zero. So far, we only know uh, the ability has been demonstrated in humans, some other primates, um, a parrot, and now the honeybee. So it's a pretty big breakthrough. We hope that you will join us again.